Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread podcast team. I'm here with two other members today. We've got Mac and we've got Matthias on this episode. This episode, we have the HTC's own Yash Kotari. Uh, he is an ambassador here from the center. And the reason we wanted to interview him is because he is graduating at the end of this year. And we think he has a really unique philosophy on how to take advantage of an education. So in the first part of this episode, we're really going to talk about some of the bold moves he's taken to kind of educate himself outside of the classroom. Uh, He ended up talking with with Noam Chomsky because he had the guts to reach out to him. So we're really just going to talk about that in the beginning, his visit with Noam Chomsky. We move into his philosophy about reaching out and how to fill out your education. And then that sort of leads into some questions about the structure of education and and whether or not we have the right incentives for independent learning uh, in universities in the United States. Uh, So we hope you enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Uh, Yash, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself first and foremost? Sure. Um, Well, I'm Yash Kothari, as Gobi and Matthias pointed out. I am studying mathematics in the College of Arts and Sciences and the Graduate School as well, and this is my last semester. I was born in India, I've been living in Hong Kong for about 12 or so years, and yeah, I'm just excited to be here, to be honest. Thank you very much. Great, it's it's tremendous to have you. Um, I guess the, not that you're not an interesting character independent of this, (laughs) Yash, but um, I think that the the really valuable aspect of of your persona and what you've done during your time at at Boston University is the fact that you um, have gone about... Yes, engaging with I- both ideas and people in a way that I think is uncommon for your average uh, undergraduate student, and I think that uh, perspective on your methodology, the way about you, uh, the way you go about doing things, and I guess the 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 source of of your your ability to take to take the initiative in terms of developing your own relationship with both ideas and people is uh, can be particularly valuable to undergraduate students, just generally speaking. So. Um, the way that the way that I came across this is uh, we recently had a conversation in which I learned that you went and had coffee or tea uh, with Noam Chomsky at his Cambridge residence, and I was wondering if you could tell us the story of how that came about. Sure. Uh, well, <clears throat> thank you very much, but I think uh, I think you guys also do the same when it comes to ideas and people. So I'm not special in that sense, but um, also I think. I met Noam Chomsky in his office. Oh, in his office. Sorry. I, I, wish, <laughs> I, I wish it was in his residence. That would have been fantastic. But, you know, it, maybe not at that level of relationship <laughs> as of now. But, um, so yeah, this happened two summers ago. So in 2015. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 2015. That's right. Summer of 2015. And I had been reading a lot of his books. I was in Budapest prior to this, the start of the summer of 2015. I was in Budapest doing an exchange program. And I got involved in the politics over there, and I started reading a lot of sort of Chomsky, Zizek, all these guys. And I was like, it's it's one thing to read, you know, people's ideas on on books, sort of that's written on paper, and that's probably been published say three four years prior to the time you're reading it. And it's a completely different thing to actually interact with them in person and understand. Well, okay, so what's the relevance of your philosophy or idea right now? So, thankfully, I was in Boston over the summer, and I was like, you know, I might as well just email him and see what happens, because, you know, the worst case would be I I won't get any response, and that's fine. But, you know, if I don't try, then, you know, there's there's not even a chance of not getting a response, because he had not even had my email. 
So um, I was in correspondence with him, trying to set up a time to meet. Uh, and the, my main reason behind doing that was because I wanted to know his opinion on what was happening in Syria at that time. Um, and also talk about India and Pakistan because the latter topic is one that he hasn't really talked about all that much. And I've been it would be interesting for me to know like what he thinks about it. And then I could also sort of put my points of, points of view across to him and see what happens. Uh, and so I, I wanted to make sure, first of all, that I had read a lot of his books prior to actually meeting him so I can sort of understand what he's going to say. Uh, so yeah, uh, his secretary was kind enough to offer me a time of like 45 minutes or so. And this was once semester had begun. So after the summer had ended, fall semester started. And I think it was in the morning at 11 or so, in October, I believe. And so I just biked down to his office at MIT. And, you know, very sort of chilled out. His office has like three other linguistic professors, I think, who were there. And we sort of wait outside and they're like, okay, he's there, a huge office, just like books all across. And yeah, he's like having tea and then his like quintessential sweater. And it was a great conversation, to be honest. And yeah, I guess we can get into that as well. But so yeah, that's essentially how it all sort of came into play. So just out of curiosity, did you did he respond to the first email you sent him? Oh yeah, he did. In wow. fact, that's it's cool. unbelievable. His response time is even better than most professors over here. <laughs> so like I emailed him in, in, sort of in the evening or so. And I got a response within half an hour, wow. same day. Oh my God. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Wait, so so for, for all the listeners, if you've ever wanted to meet Bill <laughs> yeah. Chomsky, yeah. apparently you could just shoot him and <laughs> get an appointment with him, no Ch problem. Chomsky at mit.edu. That's his email address. Um, you can write that down. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And he's very swift in his responses. And to be honest, he takes a lot of time to, and it seems to be that he takes a lot of time to respond because... You know, initially when I asked him a question on Syria and stuff, he did take, he put in the effort. It's not like five lines, okay, this is what I think. Like, he actually writes a well-crafted response, which is nice. So did you discuss any of the issues you want to discuss with him over the email correspondence first, or did you wait until you got there? Uh, I didn't want to actually let him prep. Oh, okay. Like, partially, <laughs> because then he would be sort of, he'd know what I wanted to talk about. So. I briefly told him that this is what I want to talk about. Yeah. And that's it. I didn't tell him about what particularly about that issue, right? So I was like, fine, let, let's see what this guy is all about. So what context did you give him about who you were? Just well, so no, so yeah, I told him that I'm a student here um, at BU studying mathematics and with, uh, you know, interest in politics and sort of social issues, social issues in general, you know, activism as well. And that's all I told um, him as far as I'm concerned in the email. That mm -hmm. was and, you know, once I got there, then I sort of really got into the questions, which was, I think, nice because he, he was also thinking and then he wasn't just, like, prepared with his answers in some sense, which I think was nice. Very nice. Um, and, and so that, that, I guess, is the, is, is the, pri is the primary anecdote where, where I was just like, okay, wow, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is pretty exceptional. I mean, not, not, it wouldn't occur to everybody to just email Noam Chomsky like that and expect that you could get something of a response, but you did. Yeah. Um, I guess what, what I'm curious about is, is how, how that, man, that, that kind of sense of initiative manifests itself in other dimensions of your life mm -hmm. and whether or not you've, uh, you've, you've talked to other people, whether or not you have other open lines of inquiry to people that, right. with, with people that you know, it would not occur to any 20-something-year-old you know, to just email them or reach out to them right. expecting some kind of response and constructive dialogue. 
Um, you know, I think the the idea is that it's I think how one views education and I don't really see it as something that's tied to a particular institution. So like a lot of people say that well once you graduate out of college or once you graduate out of graduate school, whatever it is, then you're done with your education. But I think that's just the beginning because this is some sort of a training ground and it comes with its own sort of ideological ba barriers. It comes with it comes with its own sort of propagandist method of teaching, etc. So you have to be aware of all that. But I guess that is also a motivating factor in that you know you see the limits of the stuff that's taught in the class, in the classrooms, and then you see well okay so what's beyond this you know so like for example like you know you're studying philosophy my dears, and you know in a 50 minute class there's only so much you can discuss right, and that's only the beginning it's supposed to be a launch pad so that once you get out of class you can get together with people and talk etc, and I think that's the main sort of crux in my opinion so in fact my first semester here my sort of one of my uh, mentors in the mathematics department, Professor Glenn Stevens, he told me this as well. He's like, you know, it's better if you don't go to the classroom uh, because you won't really learn anything there. Like 10% of your learning will take place in the classroom and everything else is just outside. Um, and I think, it, I think it's absolutely true. And so I was like, well, you know, I am in Boston. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. And I have to make the most of my time here. And, you know, you, you, know, you walk around BU, you kind of see the same people, you know, talk about the same issues. Uh, you know, you see the same North Face jackets, and <laughs> same like denim jeans, and you kind of get—at least I get bored of it. You need something new, and so this is what sort of keeps me going in the sense that you know, find a new field that's very intriguing, and something that's completely different from mathematics. That's what I study. So and then see what's the what's the cutting edge sort of uh, uh, ideas that are taking place, and you know, what what is what is it that I can do in order to sort of help push that field further. And that's basically what it is. And I think it's not something special. In fact, everyone does it. For example, I mean, something as basic as like finding a new restaurant. I think that's still pretty, that's taking initiative as well because you're going out of your own sort of routine and sort of list of what you, what you know and exploring something new. So, I mean, if you can do that for food or if you can do that for a new movie, why can't you do it for meeting new people? Why can't you do it for new fields? I mean, I don't see any reason as to why you can't. So let's say you're preparing to embark on a new journey, a new intellectual journey, you want to go speak to someone who, who you think has insight on it. How do you personally prepare? So that way, you know, you, you come up to this person with a sort of base level of knowledge just to show them that, right. that you've developed an interest and you've sort of put the work in uh, to understanding that subject. But again, you're not the expert, it's not what you study, it's not your field. How do, how do you approach it? Right. So I guess... So yeah, I think the last point is very important, like where you're not the expert. In fact, I kind of despise that word expert to begin with. So automatically that underdog feeling comes in. So yet you have nothing to lose, to be honest. It's that person who you're meeting who has a lot to lose. So, you know, my sort of uh, idea is well, I should at least have read, you know, five to seven books that person has written. If that person's not written as many books, then articles or, you know, interviews, whatever. So that at least I know the thought process, the person's philosophy. So then I can felt, I can ask that person the questions that I need to ask in order to get their response. So for example, when it, when it came to say Chomsky, I read enough of his books to know that, so like for example, when I asked, I asked him this particular question, which was, well, what do, why do you think the international community is so silent in a, in a level, in a way, 
when it comes to the Syrian crisis, right? When it comes to the refugee crisis, when it comes to the war in Syria. And then I knew what he was going to say. I knew that he was going to say, well, what does it mean? Of, like, what does the word international community mean? And that's exactly what he said. He's like, well, you have to see what international community means. It's basically U.S. and its allies. And I was like, that's so true. Like, it feels like I'm just watching an interview because that's exactly what you say every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, all those things are quite interesting. So I think once you get to that level, uh, it's nice. But also, I think there are a lot of people, amazingly interesting people in their own right, who don't have a lot of publications. With, you know, may that be due to institutional sort of barriers or may that be due to just not being that kind of person. And, and like to each his own, like in that sense. Because for example, like, I mean, you know, like you know, if I had to meet someone, a student, say, at on BU's campus, who has, you know, done tremendous things but may not have a book published for that matter. But it, you know, if I am interested in that field, I would like to get to know something, then by all means, like, in, in any case, at least I learn something new if I don't already know something about it. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, surely it does. It surely does. Because, um, you know, that's actually something uh, that's a question to ask for all students. And it's also something we encounter on the podcast just because we're trying to talk to a lot of experts or people who, who have a lot of knowledge really quickly. Uh, we're trying to put out episodes as, you know, as quick as possible. And so it, it's helpful to figure out, you know, well, how, do you, how do you access the way this person thinks? And it's incredible that you actually kind of were sitting there and knew what he was going to say right afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it is weird because, in fact, that's something I don't like. Although, as much as it's nice to know what the person's going to say, it's a bit of a disappointment because then you're like, well, I could have just watched this on YouTube for that matter. Like, you'd say the same thing. Um, but, yeah. But then, you have, but, the, but then you have the India-Pakistan question. Yeah, exactly. And so I wonder, <laughs> so I wonder whether or not you, you, you feel like you, you got a response that, that kind of warranted the bike ride over to his office, right? Oh. Above and beyond just meeting the guy. Right. Absolutely. I mean, so my question essentially was, so I'd related this to Israel-Palestine, actually, because, um, well, technically speaking, the conflict in Kashmir has been more militarized in the sense of the density of uh, soldiers per square foot than it has been in Gaza and West Bank. So I was like, well, you know, people focus a lot on Israel and Palestine and the conflict that they have there, but what about Kashmir? Like, people don't really care about it as much, and it's getting worse, you know, as time progresses. What do you have to say to that? And he was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's heavily militarized, you know, there's sort of instances of torture, sexual assault, and killing of civilians in general every day. And it's not just, you know, the side of Pakistan who's doing it, but also India. And the key question is to consider, but what do, what do the people of Kashmir really want? I mean, do they want to side with either country or do they want to have their own sovereign state? Right? Because at the end of the day, still, they still have a separate constitution. Their constitution is different from India and from Pakistan. So his view was enlightening in that, sort of in that sense, that, well, okay, I mean, like this guy is clearly... Um, saying something that not a lot of people would say at the moment. And it comes to Kashmir because, first of all, not a lot of people who are not Indian or Pakistani would speak on Kashmir, like very few people do. So to actually hear someone say something on that is actually very sort of motivating in some sense, just just as a basic, like, first fact. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly the, 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 one, of the, one of the mesmerizing kind of aspects of this is that is that 
I guess psychologically speaking and in terms of the way that you conceptualize things, somebody like Noam Chomsky, somebody who's completely off limits to your regular average college student if you're not like in his class or working right. under him or in his program, that kind of thing. And so that's what kind of piqued my curiosity in the first place. And then you briefly touched on the fact that you were trying to establish a similar type of rapport with Amartya Sen yes, over, uh, over at Harvard. And so I was wondering, item one, whether or not that was going anywhere. And then item two, just generally speaking, how do you, I guess, overcome the potential psychological barriers to reaching out to somebody of such high standing, some a Nobel Prize winner, for instance, yeah, right? Somebody who's achieved above and beyond anything that a reasonable person of their generation could expect, right? right? Absolutely. Well, so for the first point, um, I'm still sort of reading a few of his books. I haven't read enough to be able to contact him yet. But it's going, like, his books are so terse. Like, I literally, this semester has been the worst for me in terms of reading because it's so dense. And he writes in a way that I would love to write. Like, I love writing the way he writes, but I hate reading that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that but, yeah, so hopefully by the end of the semester, um, you know, hopefully by March, April, I should be able to establish contact with him. Also, it'll be easier because he's teaching a course there right now. So unlike Chomsky, who's a professor emeritus, who's not teaching, this guy's teaching. So it'll be a little more easy to teach. Uh, sorry, reach. Um, what, uh, what piqued your interest in Amartya Sen initially? Well, so I've been interested in, so he, is, he deals with, amongst other things, uh, social choice theory. And what is the idea of justice? Like, how do you view freedom? How do you view development of a nation? Like, and this is something that's sort of been in my mind for a very long time. Part of the reason also because I really want to get into politics in India. And so uh, I always knew about this. Uh, I always knew about Professor Sen because he grew up in the same town as my mom. Interesting. Um, and he went to school in Shantiniketan, which is where Rabindranath Tagore used to stay. And Tagore and uh, Professor Sen sort of were kind of close in the sense that Tagore was his mentor early on in childhood. So through those sort of anecdotal stories, I, got, I knew about him. But I never really read his books up until last semester. And once I picked it, I was like, I can't keep this down. This makes so much sense. I don't know why more, more people don't know about him. And Well, I mean, in the sense that outside his field, of course. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what really got, got me into it. And also that I love reading, because the, he is from India. And, you know, you could find someone from the Western world who's written the same thing. And his views would be far more broadly known than, for example, him because he's from the eastern side. I mean, and this is a point he makes as well in a very sort of different way that you know people talk about democracy being something that's that was developed in Greece, right? Athens, for that matter. But people often often neglect other democratic sort of experiments that were taking place in Iran or Persia or India, whatever India was at that time, and China for that matter. So like. I mean, it's, it's nice to sort of put it, you know, it, it would be nice to pinpoint, okay, this is exactly where these things are happening, but sadly that, or rather fortunately, that's not the way things work in this world. So When, when you're uh, sort of setting up something like this and you're doing your research, reading their books, uh, <clears throat> to what degree do you see, seek out counter-arguments? Uh, people who criticize them. Oh, all the time. Because I think that's important. Uh, getting the counter view can help you develop your own argument against either one, right? So, for example, <clears throat> when I was reading Chomsky, 
I was also exposed to you know reading his critics, um, and there are many like all mainstream <laughs> contemporary. <Yeah. laughs> so that works out well, and you know it's easier to get access to his critics than to him in a certain sense. So even at the Marthe Sen, I mean you know one of the most basic critic like sort of critiques that people put forth is that well, his idea that the development of a nation should not just fo- should not just focus on GDP growth or GNI growth but also focus on the overall freedoms that people have is too broad and, you know, how do you define freedom and this and that. Like, you know, a lot of libertarians tend to side with um, sort of Amartya Sen in that respect. But again, libertarianism is also like focusing on liberty as being the prime thing to defend, but they can't defend why liberty should be the prime thing to defend to begin with. So, and obviously, you know, there are issues as of, you know, people say that, well, if, if a country's GDP growth is high enough, people automatically are more well-off, not just in like wealth, but also in terms of freedom. It's clearly not true, but, you know, so all those things help you see a more illuminating side of both sense argument, but also understand, well, what are the things that these guys are saying that's probably right? And that if you combine those two things together, you could form a more cohesive sort of argument in a sense, which is, which I find to be interesting. Sure. I just want to. I, I just want to. I just want to return to to one key point because I think I think especially for for people of our generation and our in our age category, this is this is an obstacle that's that's difficult for many of us to overcome for, on a moment to moment basis and just in terms of projecting ourselves, is when when you actually reach out to these people, <clears throat> again who you know superstars in their field, uh, tremendous intellectuals of their generation, all of that great stuff. How do you prepare yourself mentally? in a way that enables you to actually reach out to them right. in the first place and then engage them in a conversation, not necessarily as an equal, mm. right, but as somebody who has a legitimate question to ask and a legitimate right to an answer. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, I, as I said, I mentioned before, I think that I despise the term expert. Like anyone who says, oh, this guy is, or this woman is an expert in this, I automatically sort of, my mind just sort of like switches off and then, I sort of develop this feeling of disdain for some reason. So the way I see it is that, well, this person clearly knows a lot about what they're speaking on. And I guess it's also a matter of who, where are you placing the importance, right? Are you placing the importance on the person just because they have done certain things? Um, or are you placing an importance on their idea? And I think for me, the latter is true. So like, you know, for example, just because you're, you're a leader of, say, a particular organization, does not, in my view, automatically grant you a certain uh, degree of importance that you may not have if you're not the leader, right? It depends on what you've done and the contributions that you've made, which stand to speak for itself. Like, you as a person have nothing to do with, you know, the actions you have taken and the importance that your actions have given in that sense. So. You know, for example, if I do happen to meet Amartya Sen, my primary uh, respect for him will be for his ideas. I don't know him as a person, so I can't automatically say, well, I respect you as a person. So that's the approach I'll go in with, of course. And, you know, then it just, then, you know, obviously I know within myself that clearly I don't know, like, even a tenth of what, you know, this guy knows. So it's like an open mind, then you can sort of absorb whatever you want and then see what happens. Because I think arrogance can be a sort of a huge hindrance in sort of, obviously, like, not e- like we're not equal. The only thing equal about 
Amartya Sen and I is probably that we are both human beings. And apart from that, then everything just diverges, right? So then, you know, it's just, <laughs> then it's just a matter of, well, I'm just learning from you. And then that's why I'm here, right? just to know what your viewpoint is and then maybe, maybe figure out a thing, maybe ask a few things that you've not really written about. Like, I would love to talk to him about Kashmir as well, because that's something that he has not really written about, but it'd be interesting. Not even, not just Kashmir, but even like Palestine for that matter. It'd be very interesting to see. Because, you know, he has these abstract theories of justice, etc. But like, how would he, how does he see it manifest in like reality? Right. How would he apply it to that particular yeah, political yeah, exactly. context? Exactly. Absolutely. Um, the the other question I the, the other question I would have is is just to ask for for any suggestions like concretely speaking. So one of them based on based on your responses is educate yourself first and foremost before you actually engage with somebody so that you come across as serious in the domain of ideas, right? But beyond that, what what do you think what do you think an undergraduate student can take away from your experience in terms of furthering their own intellectual pursuits and pursuing the ideas that are interesting to them and that they might not think hmm. they can actually get proper responses to. Right. Well, I guess the first thing is you <coughs> you should be, oh, one should be okay with sort of not hearing back from that person at all because that's the rational thing to expect. Like, you know, these guys are so busy that to get an email response is amazing. And I guess the other thing is also like, it's not a big deal, like let's just be honest because yes, they have done amazing stuff, but that means you should be more excited to meet them, not more fearful, because it's not something that you're being penalized for. Like that person's not gonna like hit you with a stick if you get something wrong. <laughs> That's not the point. Uh, so approaching with a sense of excitement, like also helps the other person. I feel because like if if you're doing something and I'm excited about it, you're not gonna be sad about the fact that I'm excited about something that you're doing. Right? It's the same thing. I think. And also to be honest, like it's a matter of sort of learning and unlearning as well. So. You constantly sort of obviously update your database in your own mind, but it's also a matter of, okay, what are the things that are rather outdated as to what I know? And then obviously bring in fresh perspective, right? So for example, you know, like initially people used to talk about uh, sort of psychology in a very sort of naive sense of what, un what one's understanding of behavior is. But now, you know, you have all these mathematical models sort of, uh, sort of yes, showcasing how people you know respond in different situations etc so again like you have to keep up with times and it's so easy to find something like I, I don't know much about photography but you know given the time I would pick something up and then read enough about it and then who knows maybe find a photographer and like speak with him or her and know more about it. because it's always exciting to be on the edge of like sort of breakthrough like that's the best thing because you don't want to be there when the breakthroughs already happened like that's not fun like you want to be at the air show when the planes are flying, not when the planes are gone. Like then you don't really see anything. You only see the trails. You know that's the point. That's that's the way I see it. It's something that's so natural. Like you know, it's like if an, if you know for some people who like you know, who like fine wine, it's like if a new if a nice bar opens up, you want to check it out. It's the same thing. Like you know, and there's only so much. And out there's there, only right? so much. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's that's the idea. Uh -huh. That's uh, interesting because I think that I have a different impulse than what you have, and I um, maybe it's like the historian in me, but I tend I tend to want to always go to like the base of things and to find like where did this come from, like where like what like led to these ideas being here, and like how do we trace them backwards? Um, and I never really, and I guess I don't maybe pay enough attention to the cutting edge. But uh, do you try to like 
do you do a mixture of those, or do you mostly just pay attention to what's like in the newest thing in the field? Well, I, I totally agree with you, man. I think it's so important to understand the root of whatever you're trying to study. So, you know, for example, you know, while reading Chomsky, he also happens to quote people who were before him. You know, like very famous anarchist thinkers, etc., revolutionaries during the French Revolution, etc. And which is great because then you know exactly where to go to find those writings by written by those people. And it's so important because you know, whoever it is, whether it's Chomsky or someone else who's writing about those writers, it's still their own interpretation. Like that's not the fresh text. And to have your own interpretation is so important because then it's something that's original. That's yours. You ma- you make it what you want. So it's the same thing, like you know, with, say, Sen's writing on justice, he compares and contrasts with the Rawlsian analysis, sort of social contract theory, like sort of uh, uh, sort of transcendental institutional form of justice, so like Locke and Rousseau. Unfortunately, these guys are not alive, so you can't really talk with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you can't read about them, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. you get to the next best alternative, which is the people who are alive. So I wanted to ask a question on behalf of the listener. Very simple question, which is, where do you find the time? Uh, because you talk to anybody, you know, you walk around here in the HDC, hey, how's it going? I'm this many behind, pages behind on my school reading, right? And so, so, so we're kind of all, we all, I guess, you know, sometimes feel like under siege by, by the amount of stuff we have to do for school. But if 10% of the learning is taking place in the classroom and some odd percentage is taking place through the readings or other homeworks preparation we're doing for the classroom, you know, where do you make the time and, and how do you prioritize independent study, independent questioning, and independent, uh, you know, sort of interviewing or, or meeting, with, meeting with folks? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, I think. The things that need our most immediate attention do not get our most immediate attention. And the sacrifice that we have to make in order to sort of put our attention to books and homework, etc., as a huge cost, you know, in sort of the relatively long term. But, you know, so my uh, solution was to take graduate courses because I found out early on uh, after my first semester freshman year that if I took more graduate courses, I wouldn't have as much paper writing or like homework assignments to do. And it would be a smaller class. And obviously I, would, I love mathematics, so I would be more engaged in it. And that's exactly what I did. And so I stopped taking well, for the most part, undergraduate math courses after my first semester freshman year. So that gave me a lot of time on my hand to do other things. Um, obviously, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that kind of sort of recipe because I did have to struggle a little bit initially to sort of figure out my sort of grounding as to, you know, all sort of the mechanism of graduate courses, etc. But yeah, so that's one way. The other thing, I, I have to make a lot of sacrifices in the sense of, uh, you know, Friday night or Saturday night, do you want to go out partying with like people, or do you want to sleep a little early and wake up the next day at like five thirty six and then get in some time to read? And more often than not, I prefer the latter. Um, it's always nice to have you know a couple of days, you know, in a month where you sort of just chill out and then have a change of pace. But it's a matter of what you deem is more important. And for me, that is sort of learning new things and hanging out with people in a very different scenario, like not, you know, like going out clubbing, etc., which is fun in its own right, but not every Saturday or Friday. Um, so yeah, like, like, for example, I have to wake up by 5.36 a.m. every single day, whether it's the weekend or not, in order to, like, 
read the amount of stuff I want to read mm-hmm. and get the amount of stuff I want to get done. So that by the end of the day, I'm like fine, you know, right. content. Like, okay, this is good. Right. So right on that first point that you were at, that you mentioned, which is sort of, you know, the, the structural problem in our education system. Do you think that are, there are maybe some misaligned incentives for students uh, in the education system the way it is now in universities? And how can a university maybe encourage more of this independent adventure, independent intellectual adventure? Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. Um, incentives are definitely something that's important, but incentives that point you in the right direction are even more important. And incentives that in incentivize the right thing is even more important. Um, so in the sense that, you know, do you want to incentivize getting the best grades or do you want to incentivize learning? Right? That's, that's the key question. So for example, I've always been a critic of the fact that people have to take three to four courses every semester because that's a lot of work. That's four courses, 16 credits. It seems like it's, you know, basically sort of relatively normal because everyone else is also doing it. But it's a lot of work because you sort of reach a superficial understanding of most things in those four courses, but you never really get the time to really sit back and enjoy that one or two particular sort of issues that really sort of interest you most. And that's something that I really like. Um, so in like a year or so ago, I was looking at graduate programs. Um, and I found out that at MIT, as a grad student, you don't have to take any courses. Um, so you just, you know, if you want to take courses, you, you, you're more than welcome to, but you don't have to, you can get back to research. And the ethos is what's important in that. I'm not recommending that schools completely stop giving courses. Right. But what I'm saying is like, uh, I think the way things are taught in that, I think uh, the emphasis on should be on people dis- discovering things for them for their own selves mm-hmm. and not covering things on the syllabus. Right? I think the question is should, should be that, what are we covering in this course? The question should be, what are we discovering? And right. that's more important, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, um, it's really key because, I mean, one part is you've got to make sure that everybody has a sort of general base of knowledge, right? Absolutely. You know, when Absolutely. we come in and we have the common core, we need to say, all right, well, our scientists need to have their experience in the humanities, our, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of people in the humanities need to have their basis in the yep. science, yada, yada. But uh, it is interesting because I know there are other schools that are somewhat a little bit more experimental, even with other undergraduate education. Uh, one of the schools that I was actually strongly considering before I came here was Bard College. Oh, right. Which, I mean, they, the, the guy who, uh, who's the president of that university, Leon, Leon Botstein, I think his name is, this guy's just, you talk about cutting edge, he's cutting edge thinker for like higher education right. in the sense that, uh, you know, one of the things he does is, is he doesn't get as nitpicky with sort of the metrics of high school students coming into his university. Mm-hmm. He says, if you can write three essays for us, we're gonna take your name off it and hand them out to professors. And if they can get, I don't know, some sort of maybe B plus average from college professors, and you can prove to us that you're doing college level work and research, we'll let you in. We don't care what you got on your ACT. We don't care what your GPA is. So bringing that back to our discussion here, as a student who is living in an incentive structure that is geared towards your grades, um, to what degree should you do you think you should be willing to sacrifice grades considering the fact that grades are often sort of the, the currency for future study, right? Mm-hmm. So if I get good grades here, then I can sort of trade that in for a higher level education. 
what balance do you place between getting good grades to move forward in education and kind of sacrificing grades to do this sort of an independent study? It is a difficult question, and I think that's something that everyone has to answer for their own self. But for in my case, I think, again, I cannot ever place my ideals on getting an A because that A does not mean anything if I've not learned anything, right? If I've not done the work to sort of find out something that, you know, just goes beyond the book that we're reading, whatever we consider it. So the, I guess the idea is placing emphasis on excellence, right? Sort of developing the skill. Because at the end of the day, if you have the skill set, no matter what kind of test you're given, you should be able to do it, right? Obviously sort of barring off days, etc. But it's the, it's the matter of developing the skill set. And the only way you can develop a very, very well-developed, sort of a well sort of finely honed skill set is if you put work into it, if you put time into it, etc. So, you know, if you work towards excellence, like being the best in what you can be in that particular field, given obviously the amount of time you have, I, I think that at least that's worked very well for me. So then, you know, you know, these sort of side readings that I do, like books, etc., also come into that because it's not something that's extra or it's not something that I'm doing out of sort of taking a break from these studies because it's very much a part of it. It's sort of connecting different things together. And, you know, the more the, the, the more things you connect with one another, the, the greater your perspective becomes. And, and I think that's a great way to learn, in my opinion. I think also just if you go into it, or I found when I go into a class with the idea that I'm going to like, I really want to learn about this topic, exactly. I'm much more likely to do the readings because I want to do the readings like uh, rather than feeling like they're work. Exactly. Um, my friend, uh, he was studying in uh, School of Oriental National Studies in London, and he told me something that's very interesting. He told me that in his courses, there, was, there were no mandatory readings. So these guys at the, at the start of class, first day, we're given a huge list of recommended readings. And it's like the more you read, the more you know, and the more you can contribute. But you're by no means obligated to read any. <laughs> and you choose the readings you want to do based on your interest. So they have a wide variety of sort of, sort of list of readings to choose from. And you pick it and you go along. And right. I think that's perfect. Right. I, I know that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> like last week, uh, I was in a class where on our syllabus there was the required reading and then there was the recommended reading. And so the professor gets into this part of class where he's starting to reference this recommended reading. And he, he starts asking questions based on it. And obviously no one's raising their hand. The discussion starts to die down. And he goes, look, I, I understand. You guys don't do this. If I put this on the syllabus, it's just not going to get done. But I think it's so unfortunate. And I can't complain. I'm a hypocrite here because I actually didn't do that reading. But you, you know what I'm saying? It's so unfortunate that, yeah. that we just don't do it because we're taking the classes. We're paying the money. Why not? But I mean, it does to some extent go back to that you're taking four courses at the same yes. time and you just have readings in all of them. So it's hard yeah. to like balance that and yeah. also read the recommended readings as well as the required readings. Yeah. I mean, the 32 course requirement is so arbitrary. There's no need to yeah. have that. Uh, yeah. In my opinion, I mean, why 32? Like, yeah. what's so special about 32 courses? Does that make me an expert? <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be an expert at all. But <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't believe <laughs> yeah. An expert. I don't believe in that. <laughs> Okay, so uh, going back to the uh, being like looking for people on the cutting edge of their fields and trying to find out what's going on, um, I was just kind of wondering like how do you do that? Like it's much easier I found to figure out who are the authoritative voices from the past than to find out who the authoritative voices are in the present right now. Uh, so I was just wondering how you kind of figure that out and go about finding those people. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I, I don't really start off looking at sort of seeing, well, okay, so this is going to be the new thing, or this is going to be, like, the future, whatever. Right. Um, but it is kind of easy to see. Like, you look around, you know, look, judge the atmosphere of the world as at large, and you pick up a book. So, like, for example, you pick up a book on, say, Revolutionary Theory by Lenin or something like that. <laughs> Obviously, it's very old, um, but the ideas still stand. Like, ideas... And, you know, the things that he has said since then and then you sort of find contemporary authors that kind of relate to that and you see well okay so what has really changed like what has morphed from that time to like today and then what what is the reason what is the need for that change like what caused that change and then you look okay so like fine you know 50 years from now what could the change possibly be from this book to that and will people from the you know 50 years later will they even remember London? as someone who was, you know, a revolutionary theorist, and apart from also being a revolutionary. Uh, so things like that. I mean, like, for example, you know, the best places to search are probably the bibliographies of contemporary books. Right. Like, no other way to find the next step to, you know, whatever you're reading than looking back and then seeing. Because not only do you find things that sort of agree with the author's viewpoint, but you also find counter sort of counterpoints. And as you said, Kobe, earlier on, that... You know, it's very important to have both sides of the argument because you should be able to, you should be a well-versed debater so you should know both sides in order to hone your own skills as someone who wants to know more about a particular field in general I know one thing that I found just while like looking through bibliographies to like find other other sources to like read is that sometimes just the sheer like amount of options is overwhelming you know like there there are so many books that sound so interesting in most of these bibliographies that uh, it can be hard to decide like where do I start right. so how do you kind of uh, go about that well yeah that's the issue it's like you know it's like when you look at a plate of dessert and you're like okay which one do I want to pick <laughs> um, and honestly I think yeah, for me what I do is just pick one like, it doesn't matter um, you know if I start to sit down and decide which one I should pick first I'll probably spend so much time that I might as well finish one book um, so just start with one and then you see what happens um, it could be that your interest just dies down after reading that one book but I guess that's that's fair enough like why not so yeah just pick one and go that's my advice I guess it, um, yeah pick one and go um, Yash thanks so much for coming here and sharing your Expertise, even though. <laughs> 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 uh, right. Don't so, follow anything I say. <laughs> yeah. Please. All right. Thanks, Yash. No, thank you so much. This has yeah, been an honor. Yeah, good Pleasure. luck in your postgraduate life and you know, you as well. business and all that. Thank you very much. <laughs>